So we're looking at John chapter 1 today. Uh, we finished the book of Acts, and now we're going to look for a little bit at the book of John. And today we're going to be looking at John chapter 1. We'll be reading from verses 1 to 18. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So I met my wife, Stephanie, for the first time uh, when uh, she was a paralegal and uh, I met her the first day I met her was when we were closing on the building this church building when I was planting this church the first time I met her I never expected that I would see her again you know she was just doing her duties as a paralegal I was just going there to sign paperwork uh, then after that she came to our share the dream meeting where we just kind of shared the vision for the church she ended up coming to that then she started ending she ended up coming to the church at the beginning and so after that, I was kind of curious, like, what's, what's her situation? Like, is she married? Does she have kids? Is she interested? Is she available? So I went to my handy-dandy tool, Facebook, type in Stephanie Doe on Facebook. There's nothing. I'm trying to find mutual friends. I did everything I could. It didn't even show she existed. I assumed she didn't have a Facebook account. Later I learned she just had her privacy settings so strict that you couldn't even tell that she was on Facebook. But my parents were a little bit more clever. They happened to be friends with Stephanie's boss. And so they talked, started talking, and they got the full rundown about Stephanie's life. Stephanie's boss didn't hold anything back. She t he told uh, the ho her whole life story, basically, and the most important fact was that she was at least a little bit interested in me. <laughs> so then after I met her and after I started interacting with her, I had kind of a framework to know what she was about. I knew she was a Christian, knew she wasn't married, knew she was somewhat interested in me. And so I had that framework of knowing what she was about at least a little bit before I had met her and known her. I think as we look at this passage in the book of John, I think we need to kind of put ourselves into the perspective of the original readers. Now, we know a lot about Jesus Christ. We know his story. We've heard about his miracles. We've read uh, from the Gospels, you know, and all of us to some extent know some things about Jesus. 
But that's not necessarily the case for all of the people who are reading John's gospel. John's gospel was written sometime between 70 and 100 AD, which is about 40 to 70 years after Jesus died. And so presumably there were people here who knew very little, if anything, about Jesus. And so what, God, what John is going to do is he's going to give an introduction. He's kind of going to give a rundown of Jesus, tell what Jesus is all about. And then when his readers encounter him in the other chapters in the book of John, they'll have a framework to understand who this Jesus was. Specifically, John answers the five W questions, who, what, where, when, and, and why. And as we look at this introduction, it's going to remind us who Jesus is and prepare us to see who Jesus is and encounter him in the following chapters. Now, you might think about this introduction and you might think to yourself, well, I know a lot about Jesus already. I've studied the Bible. I've gone to church for years. Why do I need to look at an introduction? I mean, it's not like I'm just coming to uh, the Bible new and just reading the book of John apart from all the other scriptures. Why don't we just move on to something that's more important? Why don't we move on to something I haven't heard before, to deep matters of doctrine? Well, the thing is, reading the Bible or preaching is not primarily about learning new information. It is, in part, but that's not the primary goal. The primary goal is that we would grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Think about it this way. If you have a spouse, think about it as your spouse or a best friend. Say uh, your spouse says to you, hey, our anniversary is coming up next week. Do you think maybe we could go to that place where we first met, that restaurant that we went on our first date? Now, would you say to your spouse, well, I don't really know that we need to go there. We've gone there before. Further, I, I don't know that I really need to talk to you because... We've been married a long time, and I've talked to you a lot. I know just about everything there is to know about you. You probably wouldn't say that if you wanted to remain alive. <laughs> but you would go, and you would go to that place that you had been before. Maybe it's a place you go every anniversary. But maybe there'd be things that reminded you of the first time that you met, reminded you of parts of your relationship. And maybe through that experience, you even would learn some new things about your spouse that you didn't know. Same thing is true about the book of John. Of course, the book of John is something that we uh, often recommend that new believers read. And I hope that as we look at this passage, there will be something that maybe is new to you. Maybe looking at Jesus in a different light. But more than that, I hope as we look at the person of Jesus, and specifically this introduction, that we would fall more deeply in love with Jesus. That we would be reminded of who Jesus is. That we would be reminded of what Jesus has done for us. And that our love for him would grow deeper. Brother Lawrence, in, the, in his book, The Practice of the Presence of God, says this. Let us give our thoughts completely to knowing God. The more one knows, the more one wants to know him. And since love is measured commonly by knowledge, then the deeper and more extensive knowledge shall be, so love will be greater. And if love is great, we shall love him equally in suffering and consolation. So it's not just about knowing facts, it's about knowing a person and deepening our relationship with a person. But apart from that, Jesus is the most compelling person to ever live. And as we look at the book of John and the rest of his Gospels, I don't think we can ever plumb the depths and truly understand everything that there is to know about Jesus Christ. 
In the end of Kenneth Latourette's seven-volume history of the expansion of Christianity, he says this of Jesus. No life ever lived on this planet has been so influential in the affairs of men as that of Christ. From that brief life and its apparent frustration has flowed a more powerful force for the triumphal waging of man's long battle than any other ever known by the human race. Through it, millions of people have had their inner conflicts resolved. Through it, hundreds of millions have been lifted from illiteracy and ignorance and have been placed upon the road of growing intellectual freedom and control over the physical environment. It has done more to allay the physical ills of disease and famine than any other impulse. And it has emancipated millions from chattel slavery and millions others from thraldom to vice. It has protected tens of millions from exploitation by their fellows, and it has been the most fruitful source of movements to lessen the horrors of war and to put the relations of men and nations on the basis of justice and peace. We never can fully plumb the depths of who Jesus is. And so today, let's look at these five W's that John gives us. Who, what, when, where, and why. And most importantly, why does it matter to us today? First question, who? John says, in the beginning was the word. When he says in the beginning of the, was the word, he's clearly alluding to the Genesis account where God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. But John is going back before the creation of the world to the pre-existence existence of Jesus Christ. And of course, when we're talking about the word, we're talking about Jesus. So why doesn't John just say Jesus? Why does he refer to Jesus as the word? Well, there's two possible backgrounds. The one background is the Greek word logos, or word, uh, was this concept that uh, where Greek people believed that the logos was kind of this impersonal force of reason that governed the world. So that's the kind of first background. But the second, and I think the more important background, is the background in the Old Testament. Now, you look at the Genesis account, you know, you have, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And before long, you have this repeated refrain, and God said, and God said, let there be light. And God said this, God said that, and the world was created. The world was created by the word of, Jesus, of God's mouth. He spoke the world's into existence. And so the creation is dependent upon the word of God. Psalm 33, verse 6, it says this, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So the word of God was present in creation, but the word of God is also present in delivering his people. In Psalm 107, verse 20, it says this, He sent out his word and healed them, and delivered them, from their destruction. So it says that in the beginning was the Word. And we see in the Old Testament that the Word uh, was present at creation and the Word was present in salvation when God would deliver His people. And so if someone was reading this for the first time, they'd think to themselves, okay, so the Word in the beginning was the Word, okay. So the Word was with God. Maybe the Word was this creation of God that was kind of in, uh, kind of God's sidekick, so to speak. I mean, that would make sense to them. They had heard there's only one God. But then John goes further. He says, not only was the word with God, the word was God. It's like, okay. There's a God described in Genesis, and there's a word. The word is with God, 
but he's also, he also was God. Of course, we know that John is alluding to the doctrine of the Trinity, that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. Something that we have trouble understanding, something that we really have a hard time wrapping our mind around. Now, when I was a young Christian, I, I kind of simplified it. And I thought to myself, I don't understand why people, you know, have trouble with the idea of the Trinity. It's just different forms of God. Just like you have, you know, water and steam and ice, you know, all the same molecular structure. I thought, well, you have God the Father, he's in heaven. God the Son, he's on earth. And then the Holy Spirit, when he becomes a Holy Spirit, then he takes the form of a spirit. I thought it's simple to understand that. Only problem with that is that turned out to be a heresy called modalism. I didn't realize that till later. It's not that God is, takes different forms. It's that God is actually three persons, three individuals, three personalities, but one God. That's hard for us to understand. It's a mystery that's baffled theologians for ages, but I think one illustration might be helpful to kind of help us understand what the Trinity might be like. You think about a couple. You ever met a couple that maybe has been married for 45 or 50, 55 years? And not only have they been married, but they've really thrived in marriage. As you encounter, uh, interact with them, they rarely have any arguments anymore. They do everything together. They seem to kind of move as one. And, you know, they have different personalities. They have different attributes. But if you were to encounter one of them, if you were to meet one of them, it'd almost be like something was missing because you see them so much as a unit because they've been together for so long. I think that's kind of a picture of what the Trinity is like. Different persons, but they're one. Individual. Always living in a perfect love relationship from all eternity past. John makes it clear that the Son existed with the Father, perfect love relationship before the creation began. But then he's saying, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Do we see the Holy Spirit back in creation? And if we look back to the Genesis account, we actually see the Holy Spirit there as well. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 says this, The earth was out without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of of the waters. So you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity, perfect love relationship, who were involved in creation, and now we see the Son, and we'll see later the Father and the Holy Spirit involved in the recreation of humanity. They're involved in the salvation of humanity. And so, who are we talking about? We're talking about the Word of God, Jesus, who existed from all eternity past, and who was involved in the creation of the world. Second question, what? The text tells us the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word stepped down from the throne room of heaven and became a living, breathing human being. The word for dwelt could, in the text here can also be translated as tented or tabernacle. In the Old Testament, God's glory kind of resi resided in the uh, Ark of the Covenant, in the Holy of Holies, and God's presence dwelled there. God's glory was there. 
And John says, just like God's glory was there, just like God's glory was in that tabernacle, now God's glory is inside of a human being. And through that human being, he's going to show the world what God is like. It says in the text that we have seen his glory, the glory of God was demonstrated through the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 14 says, we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father. The word for only often indicates someone who is unique or one of a kind. The text goes on to tell us that Jesus was full of grace and truth, which may be an allusion to Exodus chapter 34 when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments and God spoke to Moses and said this as he passed before him. He said, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So you have steadfast love and faithfulness, and then they're kind of corollaries, grace and truth. Jesus exemplifies grace and truth. And so Jesus is God's word to humanity. Jesus declares to the world what God is like. See, as Jesus was born in the manger, mankind learned that God is humble. As Jesus grew up and taught the teachers of the law in the temple, mankind learned that God was wise. As Jesus hung out with the tax collectors and prostitutes, the outcasts of society, mankind learned that God was full of grace. As Jesus healed the blind, healed the lepers, mankind learned that God was full of power. As Jesus cast out demons and evil spirits, mankind learned that God was full of authority. As Jesus hung on the cross, mankind learned that God was full of love. As Jesus rose again on the third day, defeating sin and death, mankind learned that, G that God has a plan. So God came to the earth in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's word to mankind. He shows us what God is like. And so as we look at the next couple chapters, we need to learn, we need to realize this is not just about a person. It shows us who God is. The theologian, third century theologian Origen gave a helpful illustration to help us understand what Jesus did. He said, imagine you go into this village and there's this ginormous statue of this famous person. And you go up to the statue and you look up and it's so high that you can't even make out the form of who it was. But then imagine that someone decides they're going to make a miniature version of that statue. And then that miniature version, you can see all the details and you can see exactly who it is. Origen argues that's what Jesus did. He became small so that we would see what God is like. The infinite God of the universe, the God who created all things, who spoke the worlds into existence, he became a human being. He became small so that we might see what God is like. So the answer to the what question was that God became man to show us what God is like. And there's a when question. It's a simple question. Jesus came after John the Baptist, came to the earth after the ministry of John the Baptist, who was sent from God. And Paul tells us in the book of Galatians that God sent Jesus at just the right time, at just the mo right moment in history, in the fullness of time. 
Galatians 4, 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. So he sent him after, John the, after the ministry of John the Baptist. Next question, where? Where was he sent? He was sent to a world that did not receive him. Jesus' ministry first was his, to his own people. He was born as a Jew, taught among Jewish people, but his goal was to reach the whole world. It says in the text that the true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. And we see that Jesus comes to people who reject him, people who are not interested in hearing from him. The story of Jesus' life is largely a story of rejection and suffering. And yet he chose to come anyways. There's so much about Jesus' earthly life that is baffling to us. That he would hang around with sinners. That he would care for those who would later spit upon him and mock him. Care for those who had no interest in him, who wanted to follow their own way. I think some of us, maybe we need to be reminded today that God is not the God of church people who have it all together. God is the God of the broken. He's the God of the sinner. He's the God of the wayward prodigal son. And he longs for all of us to return to him. During a British conference on comparative religion years ago, there were all these uh, theologians and uh, people with uh, a lot of advanced degrees, and they were debating what makes Christianity unique. They thought first, well, maybe the incarnation. They thought, well, no, there's other religions where God becomes a man. They're thinking the resurrection. Well, no, there's other religions where there's a resurrection. They're kind of debating back and forth for some time. Then a man by the name of C.S. Lewis, you might have heard him of him before, he comes into the room, he's like, what are you guys talking about? They're like, well, we're trying to figure out what unique contribution Christianity offers to the world. C.S. Lewis said, well, that, that's an easy one. It's grace. And after talking about it for a while, they all agreed. Grace. That's what makes Christianity unique. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that's greater than all of our sin. God doesn't love us because we're worthy. He loves us and then he makes us worthy. He doesn't love us because of what we've done. He doesn't love us because we have it all together. He loves us purely out of grace because it's his character. And so Jesus comes to a world that did not receive him, a world that would rather go its own way. Grace levels the playing field of life. None of us are worthy, but all of us are loved. So that's a where question. Jesus came to a world who would largely reject him. And then the most important question, why? The text tells us, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So what was the purpose of all of this? What was the purpose of the word, the pre-existent word who existed from all eternity past in this triunity who comes to the earth, to people who would reject him, why does he do this? Why does he want to explain who God is? And the text tells us quite clearly. Now, when we think about God, at least when I've thought about God in the past and God creating the world, 
I think about God as being almost kind of lonely. It's like God is, is up there in the sky. He's like, oh, well, I'm all by myself. Might as well some, create some people so I have some friends. Now, of course, we know that's not true. God wasn't lonely. God existed in that perfect love relationship, that perfect trinity from all eternity past. And he didn't need us. He doesn't need us in order to exist, but he created us out of love. And so he's existed in that perfect relationship from all eternity past. And he shows us what love is like. All love comes from God. And the most amazing fact in the universe is that God invites us to be a part of that family. He invites us to be, experience the love, similar to the love that the Father has for the Son. Of course, we know we don't become divine or become part of the Trinity, but he invites us to be a part of the family of God. Again, he says, to all who receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. We're no longer orphans. We're no longer outcasts. We're part of the family of God. We experience the love of God similar to the way that God the Father loves the Son. What an incredible reality of that is. What an incredible blessing that we might be called children of God, that God wants us to experience a relationship with him. Matt Woodley wrote a book called The Gospel of Matthew, God With Us, and uh, he told about a friend named Andy who years ago was planning on adopting a young girl from a very poor, very corrupt South American country. And so the time came for him to go and get his new daughter, and so he went down to this country, and again, they were very corrupt there at the orphanage, and they just kept changing the price for how much the adoption was going to be. And it got to a, to a point where it's just incredible. They were just trying to get as much money out of him as, as they could. And he threatened to go to the U.S. consulate, and then this kind of shadowy figure came up and basically told him something like, you know, I can make people disappear if you mess with me. So everything in him probably would have been scared, and yet he didn't give up. He didn't stop. He stepped, kept going forward despite the opposition. And here's the thing about it. He didn't know this little girl. He didn't know if she would be smart. He didn't know if she would go to college. He didn't know if she would have musical ability, if she'd be able to play the piano. He didn't know if she would be an obedient daughter or a rebellious daughter. He didn't know anything about her, and yet he chose to love her and chose to pay an incredible sum of money and risk possible death to get her. Later, 18 years later, when, uh, or, or when she became 18 years old, Matt Woolley describes this. His father, named Andy, was at an intimate high school graduation with his daughter, adopted daughter named Maria. Woodley says this, at one point during the meal, Maria unexpectedly stood up and gave a beautiful speech thanking everyone who had helped her find a better life on Long Island. Woodley says, as Andy told me, that, Andy told me this story, he was trying to fight back the tears. I got the impression that he could have lived a hundred more years or even a hundred lifetimes and nothing would compare to hearing Maria's spontaneous thank you. And it all started when Andy walked into that dangerous nightmare in an attempt to bring her home. 
When he finished telling me the story, it struck me that Andy, my non-Christian friend, had discovered the heart of the gospel. God's loving, daring, persistent pursuit of people like you and me, like Maria. There's nothing we can do to earn God's love, but he still loves us, and he doesn't want to leave us behind. Instead, in the presence of Jesus, God walked into the dangerous nightmare of human sin and pain in order to save us and bring us back home. God came to the earth in Jesus to bring us back home so that we might be part of the family of God. J.I. Packer in his book, Knowing God, says this. He says, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. He says, in the same way you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. He says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he doesn't understand Christianity very well. Packer says, if you understand Christianity, you value being in the family of God. How do you feel about being a part of God's family? First question, are you a part of God's family? Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Have you given your life to him? And if you haven't, you can experience the longing and hope and love that you've never experienced in any other relationship. Your relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you've never done that, I'd love to talk to you about that after. If you're listening online, feel free to send me a message or give me a phone call. I'd love to talk to you about that. But for those of us who are believers, are we living like family members? See, God dwelt among us so that we might become a part of his family. Are we living like family members? How do you interact with God? Here's an illustration. So if I was to go to the DMV, or if I was to call Amazon customer service and talk to someone, I'd probably, it'd probably be someone that I never met before that don't, doesn't know me at all. And if I was talking to them, they might refer to me as Mr. Richbart. The only people that refer to me as Mr. Richbart are people that don't know me hardly at all, or if someone's mad at me, and then anyone can call me Mr. Richbart. But most people who don't know me might say Mr. Richbart. But if a person knew me a little, while, a little bit and maybe knew what I did, they might call me Pastor Matt. If I was close friends with someone, they might call me Matt. My wife calls me Matthew. My son, he's not quite speaking fully yet, but sometimes I can make out the words, Papa. How do we interact with God? Do you call out to God as Papa? Or do you call out, as I, someone would call out to me, Mr. Richbar? What's your relationship with God like? Do you have that kind of closeness, that kind of intimacy that a family member has with one another? Or do you see him as kind of a distant, far-off force that we have to approach lightly that we can't get too close to? What's your view of God? How do you view being a part of his family? God dwelled among us so that we might be a part of his family. What a privilege that is. What a glorious privilege that is to be a part of the family of God, that we can come to him any time, night or day, knowing that he hears us, knowing that he cares about us. 
1 John 3.13 says this, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed on us, that we should be called the sons of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the incredible gift that you give us, the gift of adoption that you call us your sons and daughters for those of us who have trusted in you, Lord. We thank you that because of who we are in you, we can call out to you, Abba, Father. That you can, we can call out to you anytime we need you, night or day. That we can talk to you with the intimacy that a child talks to his mother or father. That we can have the assurance of knowing that you hear us and that you care for us. Lord, I pray that we would live as family members. We wouldn't live as strangers to you because we know that you've made us your children. And Lord, as we draw close to you, we pray that we would love you even more. In Christ's name I pray, amen.